It's a counterintuitive means to achievement that is richly satisfying. And God is counterintuitive a lot of ways. He says, the first shall be last. If you want to be greatest in the kingdom, you have to be least. If you want to be a leader, you have to be a servant. That's counterintuitive. Welcome to a place for you. If you want to read more books and be in the book club, but don't really have time to do either, it's the 32nd Book Club Podcast. Hanging out with Jay Otis Ledbetter this week, talking about his book, Soul Hunger, Satisfying Your Heart's Deepest Longing. So I think one thing that you see so much it's always been like this, though. Nothing's new now other than it's more amplified in social media. Um, seeing people pursue happiness, the hunger for happiness. And you talk about, you know, can happiness be pursued? And, and what's the solution for that pursuit? That that was uh, uh, when I saw happiness, I, I had a hard time putting happiness in there. Because I, I hear so many people say, well, God, you know, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Does he really want us happy? So, so answer the question, does he really want us happy? And when I got into the scriptures, I saw he really does. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, all of his Sermon on the Mount starts with, start with the word blessed, which if you look, it's the Greek word makarios, which means happiness. But a happiness that cannot be satisfied through outward circumstances. It's a happiness that God puts in us. Um, and so, you know, we can go to uh, Disneyland or Disney World because we're feeling uh, unhappy. Our circumstances has made us unhappy. And we can go to Disneyland and we can forget them for a few hours, maybe a whole day, maybe two days while we're there. But when we walk to the car and grab the handle of the car, there are those things that create the unhappiness in us. And we want to be happy. As a matter of fact, in our Constitution, you know, it says life, liberty and what? The pursuit of happiness. Well, how do you pursue happiness? Well, God says, I've got I've got a joy for you. And, you know, we pursue happiness by by pursuing gratifying circumstances. But we pursue joy by pursuing God. And when we pursue him and get his joy, which is which fulfills us we see that we really have that happiness that we're looking for. Now you can go to the work of the flesh and the work of the flesh that I can give you some cheap thrills. If you want happiness, there's a lot of things I can do for you. And, uh, but those, those things are temporary and we've got to keep that in our mind. They're temporary. And what hap- what happens to pursue happiness is they've got to become, once we pursue them and they make us happy, the same thing won't make us happy the next time. You know, at Christmas, uh, when my kids or my grandkids open their presents and the happiness that's going on in this room around that Christmas tree, six days later, we can't rewrap those presents and get that same happiness because that's already been, that's already gone. That's already behind us. And that's what happens. So we've got to pursue something that gives us happiness again. And so it becomes more intense. And if we go to the works of the flesh, then we just make the works of the flesh, that uncleanness and that licentiousness more and more intense and intense. And before we know it, we're sort of living in a dark place when God says, I'll give you my joy and it will be your strength. And it will bring, it it brings us happiness. Hmm. And kind of on that same lines, you know, in, in the chapter, the hunger for contentment, I thought it was kind of interesting that you said this because I think so often I look at the Bible and I think, oh, there's all of these things that they say, don't do this, don't do that. Uh, but you talk about the, there's an in, the habit of scripture that many never understand. 
when the Bible exhorts us to put something off, you know, what does it do? There's also a, another side to that, too. Well, I, I like what Paul said to Timothy. And Timothy was a young guy. And every young guy I've ever uh, I've ever come in contact with, one of the things they want is contentment. Uh, and Paul, after, after saying that he, he has learned to be content in whatever state he is, I think it's a learned thing, according to Paul. Wherever I am, whatever a state that I'm, I'm in, even if it seems like a very unhappy place, uh, I can be content. I've learned how to be content. And he also said to Timothy, I think, 1 Timothy chapter 6, he said that godliness with contentment is great gain. Gain for what? That's uh, that's the question. What what great gain is it? Well, it's a great gain in, in our learning process to learn to be content. That you know, I took that hunger test that's at the end of the book and it's also online. And my hunger was the hunger for contentment. I I want to be content. Uh, I I want peace. And God said that to the disciples when. He told them he was going to leave them after they hooked their wagon to his star for three years. And he went into the upper room and said, I'm, I'm, I've got to leave and where I'm going, you can't go right now. They had given up their careers, their life, and they had followed him. And it caused a stir, caused an emotional stir. Um, and he saw that. That emotion in that room was so thick, you could cut it with a knife. And to settle them down, he said, my peace, I leave with you. Not as the world gives, because the world calls contentment the absence of conflict. But he said, it's not as the world gives, give I unto you. So let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So what God wants for us to bring us that contentment, he wants us, he wants us to be peaceful. He wants us to be untroubled, and he wants us to be unafraid. And he says that if you labor and you are heavy laden, you come to me and I'll give you rest. And we see contentment and rest as side by side, beautiful things that he gives to us. Hmm. Something I, I uh, that I was really happy that you talked about, because it's so in the news all the time now uh, is the hunger for justice. And you talk about the different names, criminal, environmental, uh, restorative, and you talk about, you know, the, the great news uh, about Jesus. And I think sometimes people think that don't think of it this way, but, you know, God, he is the chief justice. Talk a little bit more about that. The hyphenated justices. And I understand where people go because uh, they they're disconnected. They they don't have any uh, peace, their joy. They don't know where to find it. And so when they get their feelings not just their feelings hurt. I don't want. I, I don't want to uh, to diminish the fact that justice is important. So they start talking about themselves. What kind of justice do I need? And so all of a sudden, justice has all these children, and we really don't. We really don't need justice by any other name. Is still justice in the book. I sort of like said. It's like saying what what piece of the apple pie do you want? You want it from the left side or the right side or the north side or the south side? Apple pie is apple pie, you know? So just tell me where you want it. I'll cut it for you. Justice is justice. And God is a God of justice. <clears throat> he is the chief justice. So he says, I will bring justice. So 
instead of us talking about all of these hyphenated names, he has two in the scriptures, two particular words in the scriptures that he uses to identify what he wants. One in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word mishpat. And you'll find that in um, in uh, Micah 6, 8, where he says, uh, what I want for you, I want you to love mercy and I want you to do justly or I want you to have justice. <clears throat> and um, that's important to God. And then walk humbly before your God. Um, that's the word mishpat, which means punish the wrongdoer. In the Old Testament, that's what you did. Uh, somebody did something wrong, punishment was executed speedily, you know, to them. Um, they would take them outside the camp, you know, whatever, when they found it, when they were judged. I mean, it was executed speedily. That's punished the wrongdoer. You cross over the 400 years of silence into the New Testament, and you get a different word, and it is the word uh, sadaqah. And it is the kind of justice that God wants us to have. It's, it's a self-cleansing justice. In other words, nobody else needs to come in and tell you that you're not acting justly. You should notice that yourself. You should notice God so well and your relationship with him should be so close that you notice <clears throat> when you're not doing justly or when you're not doing tzedakah, that self-cleansing justice. And the thing about it is, if we all had tzedakah, the self-cleansing justice, there wouldn't be any need for any other kind of justice because we would be living in a right relationship with those around us as well as ourself. Um, so justice is really important. And I think uh, it is something we're going to hear for a while in our country. And I think if we get, if we get it correct, Let's, let's take the two, punishing the wrongdoer, that's the Old Testament, self-cleansing justice in the New Testament, and let's live in a right, right relationship with, with others, and then we don't need all of those hyphenated ones. I also like uh, just a little uh, long, uh, the next page in, in your Hunger for Justice uh, chapter, we need to ask ourselves three vital questions of faith. I told my church as I was speaking on this, um, I said, there are, there are three questions that we need to ask ourselves. Every Christian needs to ask ourselves when something happens to us that we don't understand. I, I, I hear people, uh, they'll come to me and they'll say, why did, why did my grandma have to die? Well, if she had to die, why did God have to let her suffer the way she suffered? And you know, Andrew, those are impossible questions for me to answer because I, I don't know the mind of God completely, um, and I don't know why he does what he does. And sometimes what he does seems like an injustice uh, to us. when I know it's not because he's not an unjust God. And so I told them there are three questions that we should ask ourselves. And the, the first one is this. Do I truly believe God is in control? Yes, I do. They say to me, then do I truly believe that God is good? Yes, Pastor, I believe that. Well, then the third thing is, are you willing to wait until God can verify to me the answer to the first two questions? And there's a long pause <laughs> when you come to that third question. Am I willing to wait until he can prove to me that he is in control and that he is good? And I think... Well, that helps me. And I think that'll help any of us if we can answer yes to all three of those. Speaking of control in your chapter, the hunger for control, 
you talk about um, an analogy that maybe someone has heard before, but I think it's really powerful about um, forgiveness and cups and what happens when they spill and overflow. I, I first heard that. Um, I saw it in a blog lately, and I, and we even I even talked to the the editor the my copy editor about it because the we want to give credit where it is. The credit I would give is to one of my mentors, uh, Henry Brandt. Henry Brandt was one of the first Christian psychologists way back in the 40s and the 50s, and we became good friends. He and he taught me this. He he told me this story, um, uh, how he got a control of the anger that's within him. Um, he realized in his relationship with God that that person over there did not make me angry. Um, they triggered the anger that's already inside me. My wife does not have the ability to make me angry. My boss does not have the ability to make me angry, he said. The person on the street that bumps into me does not have the ability to make me angry. And he wrote this in his book back in the 1950s, uh, this same uh, illustration you're talking about. And I used it as I was talking to a, a young lady who had come in for counseling, who was a very, very angry person. And I asked her, and in the book, I think I call her Teresa, which is not her name, but I have permission to use her story. Um, I, my vice is Diet Coke. <laughs> and actually on that day, I had a Diet Coke sitting there. And I asked her, I said, uh, Teresa, if I bumped this Diet Coke, this Diet Coke here and it turned over, what would spill out of it? And she looked at me like it was a trick question. I said, no, really, it's a Diet Coke, why would spill out of it? She said, well, Diet Coke would. I said, well, if I bumped it, why wouldn't coffee spill out of it? Or if I bumped it, why wouldn't orange juice spill out of it? She said, because Diet Coke's what's in it. And I said, that's exactly right. When we have anger, when we allow anger to stay inside us and somebody bumps our emotional cup or turns over whatever we have saved that anger in, what will spill out? Kindness won't spill out because kindness is not what is in there. Anger spills out because anger is what was in there. And then, then people want to come to me and say about anger, but God was angry. And I say to them, well, you can't equate your anger with God's anger. Because if God had the same anger I have, then God was guilty of uh, the, fruit, the works of the flesh. And I'm saying that God had sinned. <clears throat> when he says be angry and sin not, what he's doing is getting us to look at the kind of anger he has, not the kind of anger we have. He's not allowing us to, to pour our wrath out on somebody. Um, and anger, it's, in, it's interesting, anger in the works of the flesh is the only work of the flesh that gets management classes. You know, we say, if you're angry, uh, go to management class. God says, he says to us, it's, it's not managing the anger. I want you to put it away. He says that in Ephesians 4.31. You put anger away from you. You put all evil speaking, you put wrath away from you, you put clamor away from you, you put bitterness away from you, you put that away. And he said, be ye kind one to another. And if you notice on uh, where anger is on the issue of, of uh, control, uh, that's the hunger we're trying to feed. Teresa said to me, Pastor, it, when I get angry, I can handle any situation. I can control any situation. 
when I get angry enough. But God says kindness, kindness. And he says that in that uh, Ephesians 4.31. So they say to me, well, how do I put away anger? If I'm not supposed to manage it, how do I put it away? And I say to them, you know what? If, if you left on vacation and before you left, you were going to make yourself a hamburger and you left some uh, beef, <clears throat> hamburger meat out on, the, out on the counter, when you came back after a two-week vacation, what you would find is the smell of death and you'd find maggot-infested meat. And I would say to you, don't cook that, don't eat that, because if you, if you participate in, in that piece of meat that's rotten, you're going to get sick. And I would say to you, put that meat away from you. You wouldn't have any question on how to put that meat away from you. You would take it out to the garbage. You'd wrap it. You'd take it in the garbage and put it in your garbage. You might put it in your neighbor's garbage. <laughs> Whatever. You, you know how to get it far away from you because you know there's danger in that. There's danger in anger. Put it away from you, he says, and replace it with kindness. And uh, that's a difficult task, but it's one that we ought to be uh, attempting at every turn in our life. Talking with Jay Otis Ledbetter, Soul Hunger, great book. Just talking about the different hungers that you have and um, how to dig deeper with it. You know, God's given us given us hunger for a reason, but it's just about finding the right way to go about it. And I think um, this one is this can be so difficult, Otis. It, towards the end of the book, you talk about the hunger for achievement. Yeah. And <laughs> we all have that hunger, but there's a right way and a wrong way to go about things. And you talk about the priority of how. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, we all want to achieve. And because we want to achieve, <clears throat> God gave us some scriptures. Particularly, he said, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And in, in other words, if you're going to achieve, achieve. Don't be half-hearted. That hunger you have for achievement, he put it there. So when you know that's God's will and when you know that's the direction you should go and when you've measured everything, go that direction. And we think achievement, that the fruit of the spirit that corresponds with achievement is gentleness. I doubt that any of us, Andrew, have ever read a book on leadership that goes from the from the uh, angle of achievement uh, of uh, I'm sorry, of gentleness. <laughs> It is, you know, leadership. You've got to take control. You've got, you know, all these things. I, I think somebody ought to write a book on leading through, through gentleness because, you see, gentleness is not an imperative uh, for Christians to underachieve. We think if I'm gentle, then it won't get done. It's not an imperative for Christians to underachieve. Rather, it's a, it's a counterintuitive means to achievement that is richly satisfying. And God is counterintuitive a lot of ways. He says, the first shall be last. What does that mean? If I run to get first in line, you mean I'm going to be last? You, you know, if, you're, if you want to be greatest in the kingdom, you have to be least. If you want to be a leader, you have to be a servant. That's counterintuitive. In this, it's also counterintuitive that if you want to really achieve, you do it through gentleness. As a matter of fact, David wrote in the Psalms, your gentleness has made me great. And Jesus himself said, you come to me because I am gentle and I am lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. But the works of the flesh says, how about envy and murders? A friend of mine uh, down in, uh, uh, in the Florida area, 
he built a, a mega church. And we've done a lot of, we're good friends. We've gone on vacations together, done a lot of trips together, cruises. And I got a phone call from him um, last year. And I was just sitting watching some football uh, and uh, trying to take a Saturday off. And uh, the phone rang and it was him. And so I answered it. I said, hey, what's up? And I could tell by his voice that it wasn't going to be a, a pleasant social call. And he just said his wife's name and said she left me. After 47 years of marriage, she left him. And I <clears throat> shocked, you know, when I, when I got my senses about me, I asked, well, why? Why did she leave me? He says, I don't have a clue. While I was talking to him, my call waiting uh, rang on my cell phone. And I saw her name. It was his wife calling me at the same time he, he was calling. And so I went ahead with my conversation with Barry. That's his name in the book. And when I hung up with him, I called her. And she told me this. She said, I've lived with an angry man all of my life, and I'm not going to live with an angry man anymore. And so I'm done. I, I'm gone. Well, it wasn't anything I could do. But I asked him, would, would, you, would you submit to taking the evaluation that's in my soul hunger book. And she said, yes. So, uh, so I sent it to her. So I, and I called Barry back and asked him the same thing. And he said, yes. So I sent it to him. I got Barry's, uh, uh, his evaluation back and there wasn't any sign in his answers of, of control or anger. There wasn't any sign in there. In fact, it, there was a zero on that where he, where he, uh, uh, that number that corresponded with control. There was a zero there. He didn't have any. And so I have, um, when I got his evaluation, I saw under achievement, it was sky high. That was up around 15. And <clears throat> then I began to talk to him. And what I saw was uh, he, his achievement was, was off the charts. He, he wanted to build a church. He wanted to build a mega church. And he was told by his former pastor that if you marry her, you'll never achieve anything. I mean, that's what his pastor told him, but he married him anyway, out of, out of spite. He married her anyway. And um, now he's asking some questions. And then he said to me, he said, Otis, on this evaluation, you got me down here with envy and murders on the, the works of the flesh. I said, Barry, I don't have you anywhere. Those aren't my answers, uh, my guesses. Those are your answers. Hmm. And he says, but I'm not a murderer. I said, well, you can kill a lot of things besides murder. In fact, as a matter of fact, when Jesus came on the scene, he raised that word to a different level that if you hate your brother, you're, you're guilty of murder. And you can, have, you can have character murder or reputation murder. As a matter of fact, your wife told me that you killed all of the love she had for you. So as we looked into it, and in his, his stories in the book, what he found out was in his desire to achieve, it was so great, and he was envious of everybody else who had built a large church. It was fueled with envy, and, and envy and ambition is a dangerous, dangerous combination. And that's what happened. And although he wasn't angry at her, he ran over her just by virtue of his want to achieve and to build that church that he was told he could never build. And when he saw that, as a matter of fact, I just was with him a few days ago. 
And he said, that realization has absolutely changed my life. Hmm. And his wife has come back and asked him to forgive her. And so it's a very interesting achievement. Be careful with that achievement. When you do achieve, listen to Jesus's counterintuitive words, gentleness. Your gentleness has made me great. And, uh, and, and stay away from the envy and the killings and the murders and that sort of thing. And I think uh, the achievement, that hunger will be so satisfied, sat- satisfactorily. Mm. All right. One last uh, question. Jay Otis Ledbetter, uh, his book, Soul Hunger, and you talk about the hunger for pleasure. You use a word that I don't think really is used much anymore, temperance. It's, yep. it's kind of the solution to the hunger for pleasure. Or- yeah, I use that word. The reason I use that word is it describes what needs to go on more than self-control. Because self-control means I have decided to just control something. I'm not going to get rid of it. I'm going to control that. In this situation, I'm going to control it. I may need that anger later, so I'm not going to put it away. I'm going to control. I'm sort of going to self-control it. I don't think that says uh, what temperance says. Temperance means self-mastery. You have mastered uh, the self in you. You have denied, you have learned to deny self. You have learned to master self that it isn't isn't even around. You're not keeping it to use it later. Self-mastery. So that's the reason I use that word. And when it comes to pleasure, again, when I saw that hunger and said pleasure, my first reaction was, no, that's that's not a hunger God gives us. God doesn't give us those pleasures. He doesn't give us pleasure. We look for those ourselves. And again, I felt a little sacrilegious putting it in there until I looked into the scriptures and saw there's not one scripture in the Bible, not one sentence in the Bible that talks about uh, uh, pleasure is bad. Pleasure is wrong that he gives. As a matter of fact, uh, in Psalm, I think it's 1636, um, he, he says to us about pleasures, he says, you will show me the path of life. Psalm 1611. You will show me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so the pleasures he gives to us so we can enjoy him and enjoy the life he's given us, and what we tend to do when the devil comes along, he says, look, I I can take those pleasures and I can make them more real to you. And because... The devil is so successful in making those pleasures real to us. We kind, we have a tendency to kind of give him uh, all of uh, the, I don't know, the lion's share of the word pleasure. We think it comes from him when it doesn't. It actually comes from God and it comes through self-mastery, temperance. You've been kind of forced into this, but you still might not feel connected to God. How to find stillness in a busy world and reconnect with your creator. There's a great book that has seven mindful practices for rekindling your faith. It's called Shining Like the Sun. The author is Steve Weens. He's hanging out in the 30 Second Book Club podcast next week.